From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. This episode of The Oxford Comment is the second of a two-part feature focusing on the art world and multi-sensory art pieces. Episode 36 contains the first part, which you can find on SoundCloud, iTunes, and the OUP blog. The basis for this two-parter is a roundtable discussion we hosted here at the New York offices with several distinguished guests and OUP staff. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Kathy Batista. I'm the editor-in-chief of Benazie Dictionary of Artists. Um, I'm also the director of the MA program at Sotheby's Institute of Art, where I teach um, and lead a program about um, art since uh, the post-war period for a group of postgraduate students, which is um, keeps me going, keeps me on my toes. And um, I'm very excited to be here with Julie Martin and Robert Whitman, two people whose work I admire and I've had the honor of working with and getting to know very well when I curated a retrospective of experiments in art and technology, which Julie was the president of and which Bob was a founder of. So Julie Martin, uh, I've worked for many years with at experiments in art and technology um, and got my start in art working actually with Bob Whitman on a series of performances he did at the Circle in the Square. I was what might now be called stage manager, which was... Uh, sweeping up broken glass and other things. So I've, I've known and worked with Bob for many years. What year did you meet? Well, I, I saw the American Moon in yeah, 1960. 1960, okay. and then uh-huh. I worked in 66. Okay, Bob Whitman. And, uh, <laughs> I say, I really don't know what I do. I'd like to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can say that Bob is a um, very esteemed artist and maker of theater works. Maybe we can talk mm. about that, okay. what you call your work, and was part of a founding generation of artists, including Clay Soldenberg, Jim Dine, Red Grooms, who created Happenings. As I mentioned last episode, after artist Robert Whitman departed, Julie Martin stuck around to answer some questions about experiments in art and technology. Do you want to explain EET, Julie? <laughs> EET was a, a, a not-for-profit sort of service organization for artists and engineers to promote the idea of, of artists working with, collaborating one-to-one with an engineer on, on works of art. Wait, let's back up a little bit. EAT didn't come out of nowhere. What sort of movement led up to its creation? What what was it like to be an artist in New York at this time? I called up Julia Robinson, associate professor in the Department of Art History at NYU and a contributor to Grove Art Online. Julia is also an independent curator. She curated a retrospective on John Cage in 2009. She's worked with Robert Whitman and even participated in 2005's local report that I discussed in last month's episode. She brought me up to speed about experimental art. The climate and the interest sort of, I think, is should be located really at the turn of the 60s. Um, and it happens because 
you know, abstract expressionist, expressionism is the dominant mode of artistic, you know, work. It's, it's the big thing in New York. Everyone's painting. And a, a group of young artists start to feel, who are connected with dance, who know dancers, who know composers, they start to feel that art is just not, the work of art is not dealing with real, with actual experience enough and it needs to break out of the frame and have something to do with what real life feels like um, moment to moment. It's really important that, you know, the year that Jackson Pollock dies is sort of <clears throat> one end of an era, if you like. So that's 1956. At that same moment, John Cage starts teaching a class at the New School um, and he, it starts being called composition and then as his own work develops, he develops this concept of the experimental. And everyone just uses that in a generic sense. It didn't actually mean just pure experiments. For him, it meant that the composer only does so much and then the rest of the, the piece kind of unfolds and transforms and gets re, you know reinvented over and over in the context of performance. So for him, experimental meant like the composer holding back. Cage was teaching this and gradually artists came to join the class. So there were several people out in New Jersey at the time. Capro was teaching at Rutgers, as was Robert Watts, the other Fluxus artist, and Robert Whitman was a student. George Brecht was working at Johnson & Johnson. So they all came in, Capra and, um, particularly Capra and Brecht, but also Whitman occasionally, came into John Cage's classes. And they really were thinking about how to apply these you know, exciting, advanced musical models to the work of art. Um, and so the score became a kind of matrix for adding new uh, perceptions, experiences, um, all kinds of stimulated the different senses and not just the visual um, into the works. As the decade goes on, you get pop art, you get minimalism, um, conceptual art. And so it, with each of these phases, the artwork is sort of unrecognisable as it would have been a decade before. Um, language gets added. Sort of that's sort of the middle of the decade. And then by sort of 66, you have conceptual art and experiments in art and technology happening at the same time. So things get very much more ratcheted up, more sophisticated. There's a definite transition to um, first part of the decade sort of breaking out of the conditions of painting and exploring real perception. And the second half of the decade sort of making that cue to the viewer, perceiver more complex, uh, whether that be through language or um, engagements with new technologies that have already, are already changing all kinds of uh, everyday experience. I also asked Julia about the term happening, since I heard it used a lot during the roundtable discussion with Julie Martin. It's fascinating that the happening and the event get sort of created exactly the same time by two young artists who are sitting next to each other in Gage's class and travelling in from New Jersey together, like sharing their notebooks, doing homework together and saying how Cage sort of, it's important to know the structure of Cage's class was that he would say, here's this problem I want to solve in music, I want to use chants, I have these three sound sources and you know, and this amount of time, so how would you deal with that? But yeah, so, so that idea of having to do performances and having to solve issues of um, addressing time, um, and that, that's the beautiful thing that the score could store time in a way that paint couldn't. So these artists were applying themselves to time, and then they created in applications in the full advanced contemporary sense of that term uh, as happenings and events. So this all uh, occurred around this wonderful space called the Rubin Gallery um, in downtown New York. 
sort of 59 and 60, basically. And then, you know, Whitman develops his theatre piece, distinctly calling them theatre pieces because he didn't want to be them to be this, considered the same as happenings because he had a different sensibility to Capro. Um, and, you know, many, several other figures, beautiful performances. And so suddenly the New York art world, which wasn't very big, you know, people were attending, even Marcel Duchamp and Cage came to these presentations. So that's, and then 62 is when Fluxus begins. And George Machunas has been, the founder of Fluxus, has been very much involved with all these artists. He had his own gallery space called the AG Gallery in 61. He, he allowed Lamont Young to do pieces. He also gave Yoko Ono her first major show. Um, so all of that happened and then he left for Europe and started Fluxus in Europe. And then it comes back to New York, but it's all based on performances in the beginning too. I love in your email to me, you wrote, so uh, 1966 is kind of a world away, you said, from the formative moment of, of Whitman and that an artist had said to you that a month of development was like a year. Um, exactly. <laughs> which exactly. I, so much was happening. So many, so much thinking was going on and inventing. Yeah. yeah I think that quote comes from Henry Flynn who came up with the term concept art in 1960 and you know he, he if someone would do he wrote a history of all of his works and who did these linguistic scores and he you know if someone did one even two months later he'd say forget it that's already been done and you know it was all this sort of idea of novelty so he, he was the one that you know said come on like a month is a year at this time yeah so it's, it's really quite beautiful to see that accelerated development. So let's push on ahead a few years to EAT's origins. If you think in 65, the Porter Pack, the portable video um, recorder camera, uh, was sort of introduced to the commercial market. And people like Andy Warhol and Nam June Pike were the first to try, start to play with it and to kind of use it to make works of art. So that's already a kind of a big advance in what artists are doing. Um, so just to rewind, Billy Kluver. He's working all through that decade. He starts 57, 58 at Bell Laboratories and he works there through 1968. And he's an electrical engineer. Robert Watts, who's a member of Fluxus and very close with Brecht and Capro, is also trained as an engineer. So all of these people have some knowledge, but the Bell Labs was just this wonderfully experimental advanced place. Um, and that, you know, there's this leap also after the Second World War where so much technology that was used for the war now is, is in place and so people can use it for other purposes. So Bill Labs was like really fueling this experimentation. The thing about Kluver is that he had a lot of connections to the art world too. Um, so he, he really, his importance is that he brings those worlds together. Um, being Swedish, he, he was very close with the, the absolute extraordinary figure of 60s art, uh, Pontus Hulton, who was, who, found, who was the first director of the Pompidou Centre in Paris, but before that he was running the Moderna Musée in, in Stockholm, Sweden. And so he, uh, Kluver knew that many artists in Sweden and then he came, uh, he was in New York when Jean Tangley, the um, Swiss artist who had been living in Paris, came to do this extraordinary um, clunky uh, piece in MoMA's Museum of Modern Art Garden um, called Homage to New York and he had all this kind of you know junky uh, equipment that he sprayed white and made it was sort of this incredible image of a, a big structure destroying itself 
Um, and that's sort of this idea of New York and the end of one technological age, the mechanical age, right? So um, that's that happens in 1960. So Kluber then on that project meets Robert Rauschenberg, um, who's sort of fascinated by what Jean Tingley is doing. And then Kluber is is sort of present. They do there's a show called Art in Motion at um, in Amsterdam and Sweden in 61. And Kluver is very integral in that, as is Tingley and Pontus Hulton. Kluver sort of goes around America and finds people and sort of who could be in the show in Europe and stuff. So he's a real mediator. So by '66, he's he's close with Rauschenberg and and he knows Whitman and all these other artists, and they cut, they cook up this idea of what would it be like to connect engineers with um with artists. Now we're caught up with our roundtable discussion about EAT. It came out of the concerns of um, an engineer, a Swedish engineer who's working at Bell Labs, Billy Kluver, who for a very long time had been concerned about the engineering community. How could you broaden the uh, outlook and horizons of engineers? Really brilliant people at Bell Labs, but so much focused on their own, what they were doing day to day, that he felt that there should be some way of broadening their approach, making it more concerned about the, the human, the human being, human scale, human needs. In 1960, he began. He worked with Jean Tingley on a piece, a homage to New York, a machine, a drawing machine that destroyed itself in the in the garden of the Museum of Modern Art. And Billy and his colleagues provided a timing mechanism that timed different destructive events. And somehow, working with with Jean, he began to feel that the artist could be this kind of engine of revolution or of change or of, could affect the, the engineer, but on an individual level. And in 1965, it came the opportunity to do a series of performances in which 10 artists uh, from New York worked with 30 engineers from Bell Labs to do a series of performances which were held at the 69th Regiment Armory uh, Lexington Avenue and 25th Street in New York. Billy had worked with Bob Rauschenberg and he and Bob had chosen um, the artists including John Cage, David Tudor, um, choreographers uh, Yvonne Rayner and Lucinda Childs, Deborah Hay and other theater performance people. They worked for nine months with engineers from Bell Labs and put together the performances that incorporated new technical elements, new technology. And during this period, Billy and Bob and Bob Whitman and Fred Waldauer, who was another engineer and friend of Billy's at, at Bell Labs, decided they wanted to, the collaborations were so valuable and so interesting, and they should be made available on a much broader level. And so they founded a, a, a Nonprofit organization, Experiments in Art and Technology. They held a meeting shortly after the nine evenings in New York to see if artists were interested in working with technology. And 300 artists showed up, and about 70 already had uh, questions. And so Pete Seeger, who had the idea, could you make a, could you tune a, a, a tin drum, you know, the, the old drums, things like that. Um, and so the organization started and began to reach out to interest engineers in uh, working with artists. The artists were ready. I mean, somehow, this was in the air, this idea of artists becoming interested in, in technology. I mean, the transistor was 
was only developed in 1948, so this is only 12 years, well, more, 18 years after. But from the very beginning, something that isn't as, as well recognized is it really was a, about changing the technology. It wasn't just about helping artists, but the idea was uh, the artist working with the new technology could be working in a newer environment, and the engineer, by interacting with the artist, again, would be working in a milieu that he wasn't he or she wasn't familiar with and could expand his or her idea about what the technology could do. So sometimes I like to say it wasn't about art and technology, it was about art and revolution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that was really the subtext that's, and very much part of the, the 60s, you know, this idea about the, that the individual could make a difference. You had SDS, you had the students, you had the protests on Vietnam, but the idea that the individual and individual commitment could make a difference in the society. Well, the, the way I got involved was because uh, a boyfriend of mine had known Bob Whitman's, had grown up in the same town as Bob Whitman, uh, Englewood, New Jersey, and when Bob did his uh, performance, uh, American Moon, which is in 1960, we went to see it. And I, uh, we just stayed friends, and in the summer of of 1966, I'd just gotten a, my master's from Columbia in Russian Studies, which I wasn't that interested in, <laughs> staying and being paranoid about the Soviet Union. <laughs> so I, uh, I offered Bob that I could work with him, help yeah. work with him, and that was the summer of 66. And so afterwards, when EAT got started, Billy and Fred asked me to come and be editor of the newsletter. You know, artists are terrible spellers, <laughs> and so I had some... It, having written a master's essay, I, I could spell. So I, I went to work for EAT then and just and continued. Julia Robinson also discussed several of the pieces in Nine Evenings. The, the absolute, the, the kind of core condition of technology makes a dancer create something that she or he wouldn't normally produce in their daily work. It makes an artist sort of extend themselves to a composer. So you had that matrix of of equipment and know-how, which put them all on the same stage, if you like. And so they all created these sort of mesmerizing things. Robert Rauschenberg did a piece called Open Score, where people are playing tennis and you hit the, and the tennis rackets were wired for sound and were connected to the light and sound in the stadium, in the armory. So they'd hit the ball and you'd get all these effects um, from from the impact of the ball on the racket. Whitman did this like a drive-in movie theater um, where the, these cars were sort of old, all these 60s cars were wrapped in plastic and he had this sort of, he always projects onto surfaces and, and creates images and sort of expanded temporal sculpture, if you like. Cage's piece was pretty fantastic too. It was called Variation 7, his piece in Nine Evenings, and he... Um, basically got phone numbers from all over New York, various sites like the New York Times press, newspaper press room, the, garb, the sanitation department, um, someone's studio with a turtle tank in it, Merce Cunningham's, uh, Merce Cunningham's dance studio, all of these different places and they set up telephone banks in the armory and they would make calls and all of those sounds from the outside world came into the, the armory. Um, so happenings and and those earlier uh, models were not technical, were not advanced, and suddenly you had them sort of thrown into a new, um, ratcheted up a level, if you like, a new technological space. So I would say that Nine Evenings would have had an impact on a lot of um, 
a lot of other artists who saw it. It was a vast space and many people got to see it. Back at the roundtable in our offices, the discussion turned to other EAT collaborations. And some of the uh, projects into the um, into the 70s, uh, we did a, one of the large projects EAT did was a pavilion for a Pepsi pavilion at Expo 70 in Japan. And it was like one of the first times artists had been involved in, in making a pavilion that would be for masses of people. While working on that, I think very much Billy and Bob Whitman were working closely together during that period. And the idea of projects outside art came up, which was, a, which was the idea that the artists could be part of an interdisciplinary team that could focus on issues in society that weren't just art issues. So the artist was acting really as a professional, the idea that there were skills that the artist had that could contribute to a, uh, a project like this. One of the ones we did was in India, um, the uh, head of the Atomic Energy Commission, Vikram Sarabhai, was, uh, his family had been involved with artists and art in this country, and he had met Billy, and the, uh, a satellite was going to be loaned to India from the United States, and they would be able to broadcast instructional television direct to villages. So how do you begin to make the software for this? And so Vikram asked us to put together, asked EAT to put together a team that we traveled to India and focused on a, a cooperative of women uh, who kept buffaloes and the buffalo milk, the way they earned the money. And so the idea of it, how could you begin to uh, um, make video and make instructional uh, software that, that for the villages. and the, visual research notes that were gathered on one inch or half inch video which was very new and Bob's idea that you could let people in the village make them or you make them together and then you could um, use the same distribution system as you have for picking up the milk to take these videos to different to different villages and get your feedback before you went and made a, a, a video in the studios in Delhi and the other one we did was called children in communication in which two two spots in New York were connected by 10 telephone lines. And the idea was to be kids in schools could begin to communicate with other kids outside their area without having to leave, leave their area. And so these two spaces were, uh, were uh, connected by telex, uh, telefax, um, phone lines, telex lines, and also something called electro writer that you could write and the writing would come out. And so we had different groups come and use the equipment to communicate with each other. And it turned out this was actually the first year, this was 71, which is the first year that the internet, the first communication at Stanford yeah. on the internet took place, which we didn't know about, but somehow, I guess artists feel it in the air. <laughs> it was like pre-internet. Exactly. And Bob designed the um, spaces. Right, he made spaces that only so, kids could be part yeah, of. Yeah, he made these spaces that were quite dark and sort of spotlit and almost like, tent-like, right? Um, that only kids could get yeah, in, no, that, no like adults. Yeah, smaller so. scale. So these ideas that we we uh, did, we did one on, on rooftop gardening called City Agriculture back before people were talking about it. So there were, th these ideas came up where the artists could be involved in other areas. And this is, I think, one of the real legacies of EAT that makes it quite relevant today. And it's interesting looking through the archives of EAT, which Julie has some. There's some at the Getty Research Institute, and um, there's some stuff at the Rauschenberg 
uh, foundation, you know, photographs of things, and looking through as much as I could last year, it was just interesting, the sheer range of artists that were part of EAT. So people that you wouldn't normally associate with technology, such as Carolee Schneeman, uh, with Snows, and um, Eva Hesse. Carolee was one of the first people who used some of the equipment for 90 evenings for a, for a performance, Snows, yes, which she did. Yes, her, like, anti-Vietnam, you know. And uh, Eva Hesse, I was surprised, and Hans Hacke, you know, people you I, I wouldn't normally associate with cutting-edge technology, the sheer breadth of people who um, were involved with it is, is amazing, it and how many artists it touched. As I said, people were kind of ready as artists, in a sense, and, and one of the things that also happened is that people in different cities around the U.S. and actually in Europe said, well, could we make a local group? It's quite so. amazing that Bob R. and Bob W., Bob Rushberg, Bob Whitman, sort of found Billy and Fred at that time. It's quite amazing how it all came together so organically. Billy Kluver seems to have been at the very center of EAT, so I asked Julia about his legacy and contributions. Kluver um, went on to curate other shows. He did a show in 68-69 at the Brooklyn Museum called Some More Beginnings, and he involved a lot more artists who... Uh, were using some kind of technology for their work, which as soon as after 66, then it sort of spread the idea that what would it look like if I, people who had been only working in painting or or in other kinds of, um, you know, basic kinds of performance were all starting to make machine-like objects. And at the same time, Kinister McShine, the MoMA curator, curated uh, the machine show, and this was called The Machine at the uh, End of the Mechanical Age, and he, so MoMA was doing it and Brooklyn and then, you know, Cage did this piece called HVSCHD where he worked for a couple of years with computer operators. So Kluver sort of spurred a lot of activity. So it shifts from technology towards creative ends to a kind of more from territory with which we're familiar today of, of sort of transmitting information and, um, and, and it allows us to consider this period as the beginning of the present, if you like, the beginning of contemporary art. And Kluver was very much at the centre of that. He was a mediator of all kinds. He could speak Swedish, you know, speak to speak French, Swedish, or German, probably all these languages, so really corral the people in Europe. And then, you know, he sort of happened upon all of these creative figures, great figures like Rauschenberg and, and Whitman and others, who were really at the edge of invention in New York. And he just kind of brought them all together and he had, because he'd done his PhD and, you know, studied in France but also in Berkeley, he, he had a philosophical attitude, he lectured, he gave, you know, wrote sort of prolifically on this subject. So he really disseminated these ideas and allowed them to be a kind of bedrock for practice after that. Many artists became involved in collaborations with engineers at this time, including Robert Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, and Andy Warhol. He would ask artists if they have something they wanted to do, and as I say, Bob Rauschenberg wanted to do Oracle, which was uh, a sound piece with uh, five, five radios in one piece and then speakers in the other four, but he didn't want any wires. So when they started in 1962, it was almost impossible, the interference between uh, 
uh, trying to broadcast in a room was almost impossible. And it took three years before the technology caught up with them. <laughs> um, Jasper Johns wanted a, a neon, a portable neon, so that his painting wouldn't be stuck to the wall. So I think Billy very much met artists in those days. The art community was very small. If you, if you began to go to performances and go to openings, you met, you met people. And he would ask people if they had a project, would they be interested in? One of the real, the real sort of uh, classic ones is, is Andy Warhol said he wanted a floating light bulb. And uh, so Billy went back to the labs and he and his colleagues uh, calculated with the battery technology in those days, you'd need a bulb as big as a house to, to lift it. So it wasn't exactly practical, but he had found his neighbor worked for 3M and gave him some heat sealable mylar. So he took that to Andy and Andy said, oh, let's make clouds. So Billy went back to the labs and they were, this is in the mid-60s, they were trying to figure out how you could uh, heat seal circular circular shapes and also have them not fall over if you're a cloud. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Andy just took the, took the material, folded it over on, and sealed it on three sides and those are the silver clouds that were shown in 1966. Yeah, that's so this wonderful. idea of how things could develop through the collaboration between artists and engineers and maybe end up with something neither of them had thought about in the beginning. So what did all of these new collaborative efforts mean? I asked Julia to help me situate EAT within an overall shift in the art world. I saw this, this phrase on your, your um, profile on NYU, the, the shift from medium to media in contemporary yeah. art. So how would you describe that, and, and would you include EAT in that, in that shift? Oh, definitely, yeah. That's a landmark moment in that shift. But my idea was sort of that, um, well, modernism is, there's a famous sort of definition um, given by the renowned critic of the time, Clement Greenberg, uh, of mo the modernist, the work of modern art as kind of becoming emphasizing its own medium so it, it, it's sort of self-critical and it narrows and narrows and narrows it down uh, the work of art so from cubism you get abstraction say right and then eventually it's, it's artists thinking about the surface of the canvas and the, the, the structure of the paint and so it, it, it gets sort of more and more focused but and they call that medium specificity or self-reflexivity right so paint is really the medium I'm talking about there and so when I say from medium to media paint also is it's so narrowing that that's the sort of main thing and media applies more than one medium but of course it has this double entendre of being mediatic, you know, mediascape, mass media, tech, you know, all kinds of media that we're used to now, new media. Um, so it has this sort of way in which it, it opens up this field that um, has become our technological present. So I'm interested in this moment of transition. And this is precisely the moment that I've been discussing when um, time gets added to the work of art, when artists want to get beyond the static experience of painting. Jim Dine, who was a colleague of, of uh, Whitman and Capro and Oldenburg, called uh, his sort of name for happenings and for some of this that was going on, these performances by painters, by people who had previously been painters, he called it painter's theatre. Now for me that's the sort of most ret retrograde definition of, of, um, of what was going on. Um, because it, but it does point to the fact that it was an attempt to expand painting. 
So you see a lot of painting going on in happenings, like Whitman's sets are completely painted, but then something comes at you in your face. Whitman's the first one to introduce film into the experience of a painted set and sound and time and action and everything. So it's this real extrapolation of a static experience to a all over experience. Um, and then the, you know, events give up painting altogether as does fluxes. They have no interest in painting anymore. So there's definitely two sides to what happened at that moment. So that's the sort of getting out of medium moment. And then the media comes as, as by now with this engagement with technology and once artists start to use use what's available, every, the newest thing that they can possibly get their hands on from the porter pack to recording technology. Julie Martin brought up an interesting point about art and technology today. Part of it is now the artists have, have grown up with with the technology. I think one of the things in the 60s was they, these artists hadn't really grown up with the technology that was developing. Now it, it's all around you. As Kathy said, the idea of contacting the engineer is kind of established. Actually, in the first newsletter, uh, Billy and Bob Rauschenberg wrote that if EAT was successful, it, it could disappear, that these tasks would, could be taken on by other, other entities in society, especially the universities. And I think you see now they teach art and technology and uh, um, their departments of art and technology. Going off of Julie's thoughts, I'd like to close the episode with Julia's thoughts on integrating technology into artwork and drawing connections to the present day. You've got to have this like, delicate balance between the artist having a very strong position, they know who they are, they know what their practice is, and the technology just pushes it a little bit further or generates an image they hadn't been able to create any other way or an experience. I think Whitman's a very good example of someone who didn't get drown in the technology. I mean, he already in 66 um, did this other work called Prune Flat where he was using, he had figures on a stage in white lab coats, um, white to, as a, to serve as a projection surface. And he introduced film and reality and film. So there's this kind of slippage between fiction and past time and present time. So he was already doing very much of that um, on his own, you know, initiative. And so when the technology time, you know, and the collaboration with Rauschenberg and others and Kluver happened, this sort of just advanced Whitman's sense of how you create a set of images that's the, the most um, up-to-date, contemporary, in sync with the way people live and see and, and go through life. So it's, all, it's always important to keep critical and to look at it analytically and not just to think it's this wonderful utopia to dive into technology. And then I would say that if you were, and I assume we all are interested in how this relates to the present, there's a lot of discussion of um, participation and performance and interaction. And one just has to sort of historicize that as well. Um, so Whitman's pieces were distinctly not interactive in, in the way that we think of it and not participatory. Uh, Capro's kind of uh, participation, if you want to use that contemporary term, was to move people around in kind of blocks, you know, so the 18 happenings in six parts, the audience was sort of split up and they had instructions to move, okay, move along, now it's time for the next image. He himself called it something like a three-ring circus. There are other models, you know, Alison Knowles in Fluxus had this remarkable piece called Shoes of Your Choice, where she would just ask the audience members, 
stand up and just look down at one of their shoes, describe the shoe and why they like it and you know where they bought it and, and you get this myriad of beautiful stories. But uh, So I think one has to just sort of be a bit more specific on what all these models have been in order to think about how they really historically ground uh, this vastly nebulous field of contemporary art and so many different initiatives now. I think they will sh help us focus what makes a great work of art today and it's not just how much it can you know, plunge into technology but what it does with it and how it still allows the artist and the perspective or the value of the work of art to be a filter through um, you know, sort of conducting and focusing our everyday saturated you know, mediascape, overloaded mediascapes. You know, that's what art can still do is, is sort of act in that role of have some agency between us and an ever more explosive, expansive image world. Thank you to our guests this episode, Julie Martin, Kathy Batista, who is the editor-in-chief of the Benazit Dictionary of Artists. And you can check out Benazit Dictionary of Artists and Grove Dictionary of Art at OxfordArtOnline.com. Julia Robinson, who has written several articles for Grove Art Online and is currently working on a forthcoming book about George Brecht. And thank you for listening. If you missed the first part of this series featuring Robert Whitman, Julie Martin, Sean Van Every, and Emily Gossio, you can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, and the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>